My first year in the FBI, there were 2,000 bank robberies. Whatever environment that you're working, I mean, you want to just blend into the neighborhood. Is part of your training to figure out whether someone is sophisticated enough to be engaging in surveillance detection routes? Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous, multi-dimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today is... Hi everybody, it's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. Jim, we're back in the studio together. We're on like a run. We are, we are. And like a run, we're also talking to our great friend and colleague... Douglas Knight, retired FBI. It's good to see you again, Doug. Good to be here. Well, today... We're going to talk to you about another case from your career, and we'd just like to know where you were in your career when this case happened. I was probably a little more than mid, the midpoint of my FBI career. So that would be how many years? I was probably a 12-year agent, 12, 13-year agent. You know, it's funny, Jim, we interviewed Doug uh, last episode or a week or two ago now about another case that he had, and I noticed then what I've just noticed again. He is the quintessential former cop. You can see it. It's like pulling teeth getting Doug to talk about himself. Cops never like to talk about themselves. Yeah, well, he's, he thinks he's on the stand. That's, That's exactly That's right. the problem. You can tell. And if our listeners could see him, you could see that he's sitting very still, like he's on the witness stand. Jim and I are all, you know, slouched around, but not Doug. He is ready to testify. Right. Doug, we're just having a conversation. We're bringing people behind police lines. I'm so you can relax. But so you're about halfway through your career, maybe 12 or 13 years with the FBI. This is after 13 years in the police department, right? That is correct. From Hattiesburg, Mississippi. By the way, you told us in the first episode that you were recruited into the FBI. How did that happen? That is correct. At the Hattiesburg Police Department, I was able to successfully rise through the ranks and I was selected to go to the FBI National Academy. Mm hmm. At the academy, I was pulled into the office, and the assistant director of the, of the training division for the FBI asked me if I was interested in becoming an FBI agent. So how old were you? I was 33. I was one of the younger uh, students in the FBI National Academy. Got it. So also, that means that if you had done 13 years in the police department, that means you started when you were 20. 22. 22. How did you manage that? 
I had been a police officer 11 years at that particular point. Okay. All right. So there's still two more years. Yeah. Because after the National Academy, I was a police officer for another almost three years after the National Academy. Got it. All right. So the FBI National Academy is basically set up by the FBI to train to a higher level, like a graduate degree for law enforcement officers. And it's usually the police department send sort of their best people, you know, their, their chiefs or their captains and their, their rising stars. So that is probably a testament to you and how much you worked. What was your rank at the time? I was a lieutenant. Okay. And what did you rise to? Uh, shortly after I graduated the FBI National Academy, I became a, I was promoted to captain. Great. All right. So you're halfway through your FBI career. Are you still a first office agent? Uh, no. And what no. does that mean? Just remind our listeners, what is a first office agent? In the FBI, there's, now some people can complete their entire careers in a single office. Right. But most of us are assigned to multiple offices during the course of our career. By the time I got to this story that comes to mind, I was a fourth office agent. Wow. Fourth office. You were moving all over the place. So what offices were you in? So first we know from last time, Dallas. Dallas. Yeah. And then I was at the, uh, I taught at the FBI Academy for almost five years. And then I was- That's in Quantico, Virginia. That is in Quantico, Virginia. That is correct. That's where Doug and I met, actually. We taught together. Now I get it. Okay. Yeah. I did a temporary assignment in the Jacksonville office of the FBI, and then I went to New York City. New York City. Well, that's a story for another day. Oh, indeed. Or is that is that where this is taking place? This New York City, yes. Oh, okay. It's then, not a story yeah, for another day, So Jim. let's talk about it's New York City. It's a story for today. So you're halfway through your FBI career. You're assigned to the New York office, which is what we like to say the flagship office of the FBI. I'm pretty sure Atlanta's the flagship office, Jim. I'm pretty sure you're wrong. But anyway, the flagship office of the FBI, the New York office, the biggest office in the FBI. So what are you assigned to in that division? I was assigned to a surveillance team. And what does that mean? That means it's a covert assignment where you're, I mean, we covertly conducted surveillance on people. So when you say covert, you're talking about undercover, right? Undercover, yes. So you're not driving around in what looks like an FBI car, right? That is correct. What are you driving? A nondescript, covert-looking car. Probably a Toyota Camry or a Honda Accord. You can't tell us what car you're driving? I think in this case, I was driving a Nissan Maxima. Okay. Oh, see, I just missed it. I said Honda, Toyota, I missed the Nissan. There you go. Oh, wow. <sighs> Typical. Um, anyway, so... What were you doing on the day this particular case came to you? This was supposed to be a a case agent was working a serial bank robber, and he was confident that the girlfriend or former girlfriend of the alleged bank robber was fully cooperating with him. Okay. And so he was concerned that this serial bank robber was going to attempt to approach the former girlfriend or what we were thinking with the former girlfriend. He went through, he did a recommendation for me and my team to follow, to spend a few days following the girlfriend around just to make sure that this guy was not going to attempt to approach her. I mean, cause he, the case agent was confident that like, you know, should she be approached by this bank robber that she would immediately contact the 
the FBI agent. Okay, so wait. So what you have here is you have a case where there's a series of bank robberies in the New York area. Yes. And then a case agent is assigned to that, and they are yes. investigating that case. Obviously, they at some point identify the bank robber, is what you're saying. They're pretty confident that they know the identity of the bank robber. Now, I was assigned to the bank robbery joint task force, NYPD, FBI bank robbery task force when I was in the New York office. And in my first year in the FBI, there were 2,000 bank robberies. What about your time? How many bank robberies were going on then? I think they had been reduced drastically by then, right? There was still a lot. I don't know the number, but there's been a, there were a lot. There were hundreds, right? Hundreds, yes. Yeah. So anyway, I remember us. I mean, we would be running out to, you know, six bank robberies a day. Well, you know, Jim, it's interesting that you said in the Atlanta field office, they, uh, the agents handled lots of bank robberies. And I would ask them, you know, it's weird. They would come into the office and they'd bring a new case to us. And I would say, you know, I didn't hear about this bank robbery on the news. And it's one of those weird, almost like a conspiracy of silence, the banks, the FBI, nobody really wants to publicize that people are robbing banks. And so I guarantee you to all our listeners, Banks are being robbed right now in your towns, and you just don't really hear about it because for a a variety of reasons, they don't want to publicize it. They don't because they want to make sure that people feel confident that they're safe in the bank and that their money is safe in the bank. That's right. I always thought that was weird that I would get news of a bank robbery only from the agents and not from my own news. And on top of that, that's the reason why the FDIC insures all banks. And that's why the FBI has jurisdiction on any bank robbery. That's right. So anyway, so you've gotten word that there is a series of bank robberies. FBI thinks they know who did it. And how did this case agent come to make contact with the girlfriend? Do you have any idea why he felt like she was a cooperator? I'm not sure exactly how the investigation unfolded. I know that the case agent had interviewed the girlfriend and he was confident that she was fully cooperating with him. And she had indicated that, you know, that they had broke up. And so because the case agent was concerned that, okay, even if they're not in relationship out of desperation, he may try to forcefully approach her and and, and coerce her into assisting or being able to. Right. And he's a fugitive, right? He's he's in the wind and they can't they can't identify him. And I know one of the things that we did several times when I was on the bank robbery squad was that we would sort of stake out the home or the girlfriend or the wife or the significant other of the fugitive bank robber so that if they ever made contact, we'd be there and could arrest them. So that's part of the theory that was going on. That's what's going on. We're just going to cover the female just to make sure that we don't see this guy trying to approach her. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about what it means to be on a surveillance squad. Do you work alone? Do you have other people in your car? Do you have a team? What's going on? Well, in the New York division, you typically work on a team of seven to 10 people. Okay. Tell me more. Each individual person in their own car and like, you know, everybody, they're dressed down. I mean, you're dressed so that you will blend in the neighborhood, whatever environment that you're working. I mean, you want to just blend into the neighborhood, whatever that that may entail. Do you have changes of clothing in your car in case you need to blend yes. into different places? Most agents working surveillance will have multiple changes of clothes in their car in case they need them. Got it. And what kind of equipment would you typically have available to you? Like what, what do you use for surveillance? Obviously you have a car. You have a car, you know, you're in plain clothes. Uh, you have all of your FBI equipment that you would normally have. You just keep it concealed. 
But what is that equipment? I'm just asking, well, like, I mean, what do you, you use for you, surveillance? Well, I mean, you, you would always have your gun with you. You'd always have additional uh, ammunition. You'd have your handcuffs. You would have uh, flashlights and all the things that you would normally carry in the course or, or be equipped with as an, as an FBI agent. But what about things like cameras and binoculars and you would, I mean, we, am I watching too much TV? I'm just trying to figure out what you have in your car. Surveillance operators will have cameras available to them. So some, some will have video cameras with them. You'll have binoculars. You'll have, uh, you know, whatever, whatever equipment you need to conduct that surveillance. And what's a typical, what would be a typical surveillance you would, you would do while you're in the New York field office? Following people sitting on a house, sitting on a business. What? Typically, you're following them. I mean, they're, you, you will have information about a person that may be a, a potential threat or a criminal or what have you, and you just follow them during the course of the day. And that, if, they're, if they're at home, you know, you don't move. If, they're, if they jump on tr- public transportation, you go on public transportation. Whatever their movements are, the objective of the surveillance team is to try to surveil them or keep them in sight without being detected. And how did you communicate with your team? So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of an old spy novel fan. So I always have read about tradecraft with, you know, having surveillance teams and substituting cars in so the person never sees a car. Or if it's a person behind them, somebody else then goes ahead of them and picks them up. How would you communicate with your team what to do with respect to that subject so that you didn't get spotted so that seven to 10 people on your team are being fully utilized? We would utilize radios. To be able to do that, and then you know, and you—it's a private FBI network, though, right? It's a private, uh, secured FBI network, and in surveillance, I mean, there's no—I mean, the 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 objective is to keep as much distance as you can, because you never want to get any closer to anybody than you absolutely have to. Yeah, at the same time, you're talking about New York City, which has a lot of traffic, and you can lose somebody in traffic very easily, right? In a heartbeat. So you have to have multiple cars out there. Do you? Do you have people who leapfrog ahead so that they can, you know, pick up if traffic gets bad or if you get lose somebody? Try to. I mean, because, you know, you try to keep like a fluid surveillance. Ideally, you would have people that would get ahead in case to avoid some of the team getting caught at a red light or something. Did you have any kind of like sirens or lights in the cars just in case you had to sort of move fast? The car or equipped with emergency equipment in case you was to need it. Okay. What does that mean? (laughs) So happy. Such a cop answer. It was equipped with emergency equipment. Well, what kind of emergency? You'd have lights and siren that are covert on the car that could be deployed in an emergency. So on detective shows, we see them yank out a little thing and stick it on the roof. Is that what you do? Uh, No. (laughs) I assume not. That was an old detective show. Well, I'm old now, Jim. Well, I'm not going to argue with you that (laughs) about that, Francie. Starsky and Hutch made that look really cool. See? Starsky and Hutch. All right. So did you talk to the case agent yourself about this? I did. Okay. And he gave you the the lowdown on this guy. And was he violent in these bank robberies? It was an arm arm confrontation. I mean, he he displayed a weapon, demanded money, and left with money. Okay. And apparently a number of times. A number of times, yes. So did you set up on the girlfriend the ex girlfriend's house? Yes. And what did you find when you got there? Well, I do remember because it was a uh, Sunday morning in Staten Island in a single family home in a residential area. And I remember when I did the initial drive by that morning that her car was parked really weird in her driveway. What do you mean? Her car was not fully in the driveway. It was parked at like a 45 degree angle in front of her front door on her home. Hmm. 
And so you think, well, maybe she had unloaded some, maybe she had been to the Costco or something. Maybe she had a lot of heavy stuff to unload. So it was Go actually ahead. parked partially on the grass? Yes. Okay. That seems odd. Seems odd, but you know, I was you thinking, well, maybe they're unloading something heavy out of the car or something. Okay. So All that, right. that so, seemed seemed odd. And so you're sitting on the house and the car is there and So wait, wait. I'm sorry. I want to go back to like that first step. So you said that first thing that morning you do a drive by. Is that how you typically do surveillance to decide where you're gonna set up or is that something you've done the day before? Uh, well, I mean you would want to do a drive by to see if to see if the vehicle's there. Make sure that you can fully identify the vehicle should it move and kind of know the lay of the land. So if they come out of the driveway, kind of have an idea if they go, what are their options? What are their options? If they go left, if they go right, can they go straight? Where are they going? Yes. And then you'll have have people set up in both directions at different points should they go without, so that you can follow them without having to do any kind of overt movement. Right. And then let's say they go left. What do all the team members do that are parked on the right option? Well, then they would start to move in that direction. So they have to move pretty fast, huh? Yes. Okay, which is why they might need lights and sirens sometimes to get there. Could could be. You wouldn't want to alert the bad guy, but... You have to have it available. Okay, so you drive by her house. You see her car is parked at an odd angle, partially on the grass. What happens next? Well, after a couple of hours, then the woman left with a with a kid in the back seat. How so old was the kid? The kid was probably six years old, something mm-hmm. like that. So you have like the female and I had, you know, I had a photograph of the girlfriend and I had a picture of the, of the subject of the, the bad guy. And so she leaves in her, her car with her child in the back. And, and you, you recognized her as the girlfriend. You I, confirmed I, I recognized her as the girlfriend. So we just followed about her, her, her daily business. Okay, and she was driving around, and she's how- driving around. I mean, you know, she goes to an ATM, she goes to like a market, she does several short, quick little stops, and I think we crossed the Verrazano, went over into Brooklyn, and so we're a couple hours into into the surveillance by this point. Just crossing the Verrazano, I mean, if you haven't, if our listeners haven't actually crossed that bridge, I mean, it's a huge bridge. There's like 10, 12 lanes in each direction. It's massive. It's, it's two layers too. It's two. It's one roadway on top of another roadway, and you could easily lose her, or she could easily lose you, just going across that bridge. Yes, because if you're not in the right lane when you get to the other side, the exit lanes come up pretty quick, and there's a variety of different options there. Right, you could exit left, right, center. It's all over the place. Now, Jim, get ready. I'm about to drop some knowledge. Are you ready? Whew! Can't wait. Okay, here we go. Is part of your training to figure out whether someone is sophisticated enough to be engaging in surveillance detection routes, also known, Jim, as SDRs. I don't know if you've ever heard of that or not. Well, actually, you mean evasive maneuvers? No, I mean surveillance detection. Well, that too. (laughs) But is that something that you look for? I mean, it seems to me that, you know, I suppose there's an off chance that she's running in and out of all these places to see if she's being followed. That is a possibility. And, you, you know, you would be maybe not consciously aware of it, but you're always looking for that. Like, you know, if you're surveilling like um, organized crime guys, they're always doing SDRs and that sort of thing. So, you know, you have to keep your distance and you have to be aware of that. But there's no indication that she's got any sophistication as far as doing, conducting her her SDRs or anything like that. They all appear to be very straightforward. There, there's no issues being able to surveil her. We're able to keep our distance without doing any kind of awkward movements or anything like that. 
guys, have y'all heard of Care Of? It's a monthly subscription vitamin service that delivers completely personalized vitamin and supplement packs right to your door. Care Of's fun online quiz asks you about your diet, your health goals, your lifestyle choices. It only takes five minutes to find out what vitamins and supplements you specifically need. It definitely only took me five minutes. It was actually kind of fun. It really made me think about what I take and what I need and what I think I might be lacking in my daily diet that Care Of's supplements might be able to help me with. Did you know that 90% of people fall short of the FDA-recommended guidelines for at least one vitamin or nutrient? If you take Care Of's quiz, you'll get the vitamins you need to get back on track and reach your health goals. Your vitamins get delivered right to your door in a personalized, easy-to-remember daily pack. They're perfect for busy on-the-go lifestyles or for people like me who travel a lot. You can just grab a pack or however many you need for the days you're going to be gone and toss them in your suitcase. For 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins, visit TakeCareOf.com and enter the promo code BESTCASE. That's 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins. You should visit TakeCareOf.com and enter the promo code BESTCASE. Do y'all have a family member like I do who always tells the best stories? Like the one about the first neighborhood TV or that boat trip across the Atlantic? Well, StoryWorth preserves these narratives so future generations can enjoy them. StoryWorth was founded by a guy who wanted his dad to record his amazing stories. The family enjoyed the process so much that they launched in April of 2013 so families around the world can share in this gift. All you have to do is purchase a subscription for someone you love and each week, StoryWorth sends them an email with a question about their life. All they do is reply to the email with their story. They can also record it over the phone by calling the StoryWorth number. All the stories are private and they're only shared with the family that you choose. You can preserve your memories and pass on treasured memories to your children and their future families. I gave StoryWorth to my sister. My sister is not only a great storyteller, but she has a big family. She's got four boys, all kinds of in-laws, not to mention us, her original family. My family is scattered across the U.S., and this is a great way to bring us together. For $20 off StoryWorth right now, you can go to storyworth.com slash bestcase when you subscribe. For $20 off, that's storyworth.com slash bestcase. So it's a couple hours in, you've crossed this very large and impressive bridge that I'm not sure I've ever been across, and you're in Brooklyn. What, what happens next? At this point, you know, there's, it's just a routine surveillance. I mean, there's no, at this point, there's nothing that seems like that we should be amped up in any way. And suddenly, at an intersection, there's a passenger in the front seat of the car. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean she's driving? Mm-hmm. She didn't stop and pick anybody up? She did not. And somebody had eyes on her the whole time. Somebody had eyes on her the whole whole time. With the, in traffic, I mean, they could, she could be as much of the block away before anybody would be like right there on her. But I mean, she's in she's in close proximity to some members of the team at all time. And then we roll up to a stop sign, and suddenly, lo and behold, they're the front seat passenger. And you can see that from wherever your vantage point is. Yes. Okay. And is this a male passenger? Well, I sent a member of my team up to the next intersection to see if they can take him and get up by him in the traffic. And I said, look at the picture and then see if you can get close to him in traffic as we go through. Because there's a variety of, of you know, several lanes, a lot, lot of intersections. And at one of those intersections, my guy calls back and said, 99% sure that that's the subject in the front seat. Wow. Wow. And, and you by, didn't even know he was in the car. Didn't know he was in the car. And by subject, we mean the target the of this guy. investigation. Correct. The bank robber. Correct. 
Okay. So now you you know that something happened. What do you think happened? How did he get in that car? Either magic or osmosis, he suddenly appeared. Magic. <laughs> no, don't you? I mean, no, I mean, uh, apparently, I mean, it, it became readily apparent that he had been concealed within the car the entire time that we just not were, were not aware of it. And that's why the car was parked yes. close to the house like that. So he could get yes. out of the house and into the car without anybody seeing. Yes. Right. So he probably crawled out the front door or side door or something. Right. Which, of course, means he's a little bit sophisticated, right, Jim? Because he's worried about her house being surveilled. Right. And he's also on the run. So it's a very suspicious kind of behavior. So it would be consistent and corroborative of what your team member said, which is that it's 98% sure that this is the bank robber. Correct. So what do you do now? I call the case agent and say, hey, I think we got your guy that's this in, in this car. And, of course, there's a series of phone calls. He's like, well, he's got to call his boss, and I call my boss. Okay. And then uh, then I get a call back from the case agent and say, hey, are there any way your team can arrest this guy? Really? Now, right. normally, do you make arrests when you're in SOG, no. Surveillance Operations Group? Uh, you do not. Uh, and that's why? Uh, because when you do a traffic stop, it's a grand show. You have to stop traffic, and you reveal your cars to a lot of bystanders and like they can see the cars identified like the license plates all all of this and the point is you're covert absolutely and you want to stay that way for future operations yes right but this guy is an armed and dangerous felon and the case agent wants you to take him off the street that is correct because obviously he's been in the wind for a particular amount of time yes i mean he was a habitual offender he went to jail he got out and he got out of jail and immediately started robbing banks really yes and so then what happens? So you get the word from the case agent. We want you to arrest this guy. We want you to blow the covert nature of your entire team and all your vehicles and arrest him. So what'd you do? Well, typically when the FBI does an arrest, you do an arrest plan, which is like a multi-page document that, you know, you do and you go through, submit it through various levels of approval. However, in this type of situation, I mean, I did everything verbally. And so I had authorization to do it. And so then I started conducting a plan on the on the air as we was rolling around conducting our surveillance. And then I had each one of my people drop off the last one in the stack, the, la- the last person that would be trading along, like suit up, put on their body armor, make sure that they got their weapon, make sure that they've got all their law enforcement gear that we normally keep hidden in the car. And so I circulate everybody through on the team until everybody's all geared up and suited up and, and ready to make a an arrest. And so what do we call that? A felony car stop, a felony arrest. Okay. And, well, you and I know, and, um, well, Francie may be aware, that there was a felony car stop in Florida by FBI agents who were going after armed bank robbers that turned into the biggest tragedy in FBI history. I mean, more agents were shot and killed that day than at any other time in the FBI. Ed Morales, who was my staff counselor in the FBI Academy, he was still recovering from that shootout. Yes, that was 1986 Miami shootout. And I was in the firearms training unit with Ed Morales. And so, you know, I, I was very familiar with that shootout, that situation. So I was very cognizant of making sure that that didn't happen in this, this situation. Well, well, maybe, Francie, we'll get Ed Morales to come on and talk about that. Oh, I'd love that. So, that would be a fantastic idea, Jim. 
So, Doug, we say this a lot, but we promise our listeners that we'll take them behind police lines. And so what I want to know from you is what's going through your mind at a time like this? You know about that history, which is not all that long ago in the history of the FBI. You know the danger, generally speaking, of traffic stops. You've been a police officer, so you know traffic stops are dangerous to police. You've got all kinds of people around. New York is teeming with people. What goes through your mind when you're getting ready to make this kind of traffic stop to try to arrest someone that you know might result in a shootout? Uh, my biggest concern was the fact that they were the child in the back seat. I mean, that was thing, something I was really, really, really concerned about. Could have been easily caught in any kind of crossfire. Could, could have been caught in a crossfire. And so I knew that I had to make the, the arrest. It had to be clean. It had to be quick. And we had to get be able to neutralize the subject, I mean, almost immediately with minimal opportunities for him to be able to regroup and, and figure out any kind of strategy. Yeah, well, that because, seems impossible. Yeah, but the, the most dangerous thing that any police officer or FBI agent ever does is actually do a traffic stop because that is when most police officers across this country get shot or killed. Yes. And you know all that in the back of your mind. So I, I hear what you're saying about being concerned about that child. But as a trained prosecutor, I noticed you didn't really answer my question. What's going through your mind? It's going through my mind. All these different, you know, is the guy going to have a gun? Is he going to resist? Is the girlfriend, is she complicit? Is she going to, like, attempt to, like, like you know, like flee? And are we going to have, like, some sort of pursuit? Are we going to have some sort of standoff? Is he going to hold, like, the, the girl and the, the kid hostage? All of these things are going through through my mind, and I'm trying to figure out a plan to minimize the opportunities to do all of this. Well, are you scared? I mean, is it you? You know, you're you're putting on your bulletproof vest. This guy's an armed felon. Are you worried about getting shot? Do you think about yourself? I mean, I guess you're at some level. You're always thinking about that, but I'm always more concerned about my people, and then making sure that we do everything that we're supposed to do. Uh, because I don't want to put I don't, I don't want to put anybody in the public at jeopardy in any way. And so I'm looking for an opportunity to do this in an isolated spot that's going to minimize my interaction with the public. Okay, so what happens? Well, but before we did the traffic stop. They were lined up to get like on a freeway, and then like at the last second, they abort, and then they go like they cross like five lanes of traffic. They go in opposite direction, Uh-oh. and so I'm kind of getting amped up, and I'm thinking, okay, maybe they're on to us. You know, maybe they've noticed that the the, the same car in, in their rearview mirror or something, and so I'm getting really, really anxious. And then I decided that we got to do this now or never. And I had a senior guy on my team. And he's like, look, he said he he was really familiar with the area. We were in Brooklyn. He said, there's a great place up here. This is this is the place to do it. So we get up there, and it's like on a Sunday morning still, minimal traffic, and it's kind of an isolated intersection. And then they stopped at the red light, and then we make the decision, and I block the – I go around, and I block the uh, – physically block the path with my car, and then our guys just converge on the car. And then I have one of my other guys run up to the left rear door, directly behind the passenger door, directly behind the driver, where the child is seated. That agent approaches that door to open the door to get the kid out of the seatbelt and get the kid removed from the scene. And then simultaneously, I've got people that's going to the right front to get the the passenger out of the right front seat. The bank robber, the purported bank robber. Yes. And what happened? Did he resist? Did he scream? Did he yell? What happened? It happened much unlike most things I've been involved with. It happened almost instantaneously and it was and it was pretty flawless. All right. And within about 
two seconds, the guy's out. He's on a on, face down on the concrete, handcuffed. Okay, and what about the girlfriend? Uh, the girlfriend became hysterical. Uh, we got her out of the car, started debriefing her, and at that point, she knew that she was she she knew that her 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 lie was up. And then, of course, had it been up to me, you know, I wanted her to be prosecuted for aiding abetting and harboring a fugitive and that sort of thing. And so, I said, look, I'm I'm not the case agent, but you know, obviously. You know, you're complicit in this. Well, I assume everybody gets, she is, surely you arrested her. Well, I handcuffed her. I handcuffed her. Now, she was later released, and the prosecutor had no interest in pursuing any charges on her whatsoever. Prosecutor. Exactly, Francie. Uh, You know, the funny thing is, though, there's a a bias. I mean, I face this in my own career where uh, early on at the U.S. Attorney's Office, I was prosecuting, as, as many people did as they came in as new AUSAs. We were in what was called the gun section. Really, it was the training section and the gun cases are a good way to introduce you to federal court because they're relatively uh, simple with respect to the charges themselves. So in the gun unit, we had a lot of gun trafficking cases, lying and buying, it's also known as, where a lot of women will buy guns for their felon, convicted felon boyfriends. Mm -hmm. And everybody knows that it's for their convicted felon boyfriends, but they do it anyway and they lie on the paperwork, which is a federal crime. I cannot tell you how many times that happened that my office refused to allow me to prosecute the women. Mm. We prosecuted the guys who were the recipient of the weapons, but they just would not let us prosecute the women. They just had some kind of weird bias about it. And I never, I never agreed with it. I think that you knowingly aid and abet someone in committing a crime, you should be held accountable. But I guess the AUSA in New York, which is apparently not the flagship office, Jim, uh, didn't agree. Just because the Southern District of New York assistant United States attorney doesn't do the right thing doesn't mean the (laughs) FBI office and agents, dedicated professional agents like Douglas Knight here, Mm. did the right thing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that FBI New York isn't the flagship office because it is. Well, I'll just have to take your word for that, Jim. Well, you don't have to take my word for it. Doug will also tell you. You two are biased. Well, you don't fully understand about the FBI office until you're actually assigned there and on the ground working. I had heard that my entire career, but once you're there, once you're part of that environment, it is the flagship Francie, <laughs> the resident agencies out of New York, in other words, every FBI division has a main office, and that's FBI New York. But every FBI office also has resident agencies. In smaller towns spread out around it. Same is true in Georgia, Jim. Yes. But many of those offices, those resident agencies, are two or three or four FBI agent offices. Yes. In New York, the resident agencies are two and three and 400 agents, bigger than most of the rest of the offices in the country. So it's a massive office. There are thousands of agents there, and it is something that is spread out over a huge area. And it is clearly not only because of the quality of work that's done there, but the quality of agents there make it the flagship. How nice. Well, I find it very interesting that you would brag about the quality of the agents and the agency where you worked, but I totally understand it. I have no idea what you're talking Mm -hmm, about. Of course. So, Doug. Anyway, Doug. Can you please tell us? This guy was arrested. He was prosecuted for this? Yes. And? Prosecuted and was he convicted? <laughs> he was prosecuted and he was convicted. Yes, we 
we cuffed him, we searched him, and then we transported him to 26 Federal Plaza for for to, to meet the uh, case agent there. Okay. And he got prosecuted, and hopefully the case agent was very thankful that this fugitive that you were just supposed to be covering a lead for to sort of back up and make sure that the witness was doing okay, actually you turned out to be the guy who put the cuffs on the guy. That's great. The, and we got a lot of accolades from it because it's, it's a very unusual occurrence because it, it, it kind of defies the covert mission right. and objective of being a surveillance team. Right. So, Doug, we've heard about this story. It seems to have a very successful conclusion. Would this be a best case or worst case in your mind? Uh, had to be a best case. And why? Because? Uh, had a successful outcome. Nobody got hurt. The plan worked out. The plan worked out, you know, because t- typically when you make a plan, everything's going great till you actually start the plan. And then usually somewhere along there, by the time you start to encounter, like, you know, doors or people or something, the plan kind of starts to alter a little bit. This one actually worked out, and it was just sheer, sheer luck. It's wonderful when a plan comes together, right, Francie? I've heard that before, Jim. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great, Doug. And we really appreciate you coming on and telling us about this very interesting surveillance turned major felony arrest case. And we hope our listeners enjoyed listening to Douglas Knight from So So Mississippi, who uh, did good with his career in the FBI. Agreed. And I'm sure that our listeners will hear more from Doug Knight. Yeah, we'll definitely have to bring you back. For sure. Thanks for letting me be here. All right. Till then, thank you for listening. Signing off for Best Case, Worst Case. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clemente at Empire Studios, LA. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness Delight can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know? Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community. When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more. That's d2l.org. the number two, L, dot org. <laughs>